morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. This coming Wednesday marks the 75th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the attack that transformed America's role in the world. This morning, we remember Pearl Harbor, beginning with the memories of those who were actually there. Lee Cowan will report our cover story. Every year, there are fewer, those who witnessed the attack that plunged the U.S. into war. But 75 years later, they still have a story to tell. And living one day like it's going to be my last day. Every day is going to be my last day. That a lesson you learned that day on December 7th? Oh, yeah. Life, life is precious. The infamous day that defined a nation and a superpower ahead on Sunday morning. The Rolling Stones have been rocking the rock music world for more than half a century, and they're showing no sign of slowing down. This morning, they look back and ahead with Anthony Mason. The Rolling Stones took root 55 years ago when Keith Richards noticed the blues albums under Mick Jagger's arm. I'm carrying this record means it's a chat invitation. It's a badge of some kind. It's a badge, yeah. I said, what you got under your arm, man? Keith and Mick returned to their roots to sing the blues later on Sunday morning. Go away, left man. Reflections on race, gender, and sexuality are all to be found in the work of a photographer Serena Altschul will be showing us. Every portrait tells a story. <gasps> oh, my goodness, girl, look. Especially the portraits of Timothy Greenfield Sanders. Right there. And then... Do you tell people to smile or not smile? No or... smiles. No smiles. And I would come in here... Later on Sunday morning, a portrait of a portrait photographer. Tis the season for Christmas movies. And Billy Bob Thornton is a veteran of the genre. This morning, he shares his take on acting and life with Tracy Smith. Billy Bob Thornton's characters are often deeply flawed or downright mean, but they're never boring. I have a physical reaction to boredom and... Uh, to boring uh, people. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton, never a dull moment, ahead on Sunday morning. John Blackstone studies the fine print with author Michael Lewis. We'll go on a scavenger hunt with David Pogue. Steve Hartman has the tale of some unlikely partners and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As we've told you, many are feared dead in Oakland, California, following a fire at a converted warehouse that was being used for a party. Carter Evans is in Oakland for us this morning. Jane, so far, authorities have recovered nine bodies. These crews have been working all night here behind me, and it's hard work because the roof and part of the second floor collapsed, so all that debris was blocking the entrance. They've had the heavy equipment out here all night. They've been moving some of that debris and actually cut a hole in the side of the building so they can gain access to the rest of the bodies. 
For most of the day, the smoldering warehouse was too dangerous for firefighters to enter, leaving scores of friends and family like Dan Vega waiting desperately for news. I want to be there. Give me some gloves. I got work shoes. I'm ready. Let me find my brother. That's all I want. Authorities fear the death toll will rise. We expect the, the number of deceased to go up. Uh, how far, I don't know, but uh, we're expecting the worst, maybe, maybe uh, a couple dozen. Alameda County Sheriff spokesman Ray Kelly said it's unclear how many people were in the converted warehouse for a party Friday night when flames broke out. The fire raged out of control for hours. Crews surrounded the building as flames and smoke poured out from the windows and walls. Dozens struggled to escape. We tried to like figure out where the smoke was coming from and then we saw where the fire was. It was on the back left corner of, of the space and uh, started yelling and trying to get everyone out. I mean, this, it all happened really quick, but like, the fire went up really, 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 really quickly. Bob Ulay was a resident artist in the building. After the fire broke out, he and a friend ran different directions. I haven't seen him and there's been flames shooting out of the building for the past. 30 minutes, so I, 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 hope, I hope he's, he's okay. Inside, the warehouse was elaborately decorated with eclectic art, Persian rugs, and musical instruments. Firefighters say walls had been built to create live workspace for dozens of artists. None of it was permitted by the city. All of it was reduced to rubble. Darren Ranaletti is Oakland's planning and building director. Um, we had received recent complaints about blight and unpermitted construction at the property. We had opened an investigation and that investigation is ongoing. Firefighters used a drone with a thermal camera to look for signs of life. There were none, but there was some relief. Several dozen people um, that were thought uh, missing here have been located and are alive. And so that's the good news that we have to offer at this time. Ahead. They are my heroes, and I will tell their stories as long as I live. We remember Pearl Harbor. The Japanese attack on Hawaii on December 7, 1941, sparked the defiant battle cry, Remember Pearl Harbor. And even 75 years later, the dwindling ranks of those who watched the attack happen remember it still. Our cover story is reported by Lee Cowan. Hawaii's Pearl Harbor. It was just a place before it became a memorial. A tropically tranquil place that was Dorinda Nicholson's childhood home. This was my favorite part of the neighborhood. Dorinda was just six years old that Sunday in 1941. Born in Hawaii, her family was civilian and lived near the dock for the famous Pan Am Clippers. The idea of war coming to this remote Pacific outpost seemed to most here about as likely as a white Hawaiian Christmas. But at 7.55 a.m. on December 7th, a storm did indeed come. They were coming right over the house. And when you came outside and you looked up, they were right there. Right overhead, canopies pushed back, and you could see the pilots' faces. They were that close. 
What did you think when you saw that? Oh, I just leaned closer to my dad and hugged him a little closer. Six Japanese aircraft carriers had sailed to within 300 miles of the Hawaiian Islands, loaded with more than 350 planes that were on Oahu like a swarm of angry mosquitoes. Dorinda's family fled to the relative safety of the island's sugarcane fields. But Navy seaman Dick Giraco, now 95, had nowhere to go. Two, three hundred yards over there is where I was. He had joined the Navy at age 19 and was part of the crew that manned the PBY Catalina flying boats out of the Naval Air Station at Fort Island. How close were the bombs falling to your hangar? Within a hundred yards. He hightailed it to a nearby ditch for cover. And when I first went in it, I'm laying on the bottom of it. And another fella come jumping in right on top of me, laid on top of me. And he was saying Hail Mary's as fast as he could say them. And I said, well, that takes care of that part. I don't have to do that. <laughs> but then a Japanese pilot spotted him. This fella says, well, you might as well turn over and watch this. Dumb me, I turn over. I said, looking up, I'm looking up at a dive bomber coming down. Straight at you? Oh, yeah. Banked out over the airfield and looked right down in the ditch. And I could look him right in the eye. Hangar 79, just one down from where Dick was, still bears the scars. The bullet holes in its bright blue window panes remain. Reminders of the serenity shattered on a quiet Sunday morning. Were you mad? Were you angry? Confused? I, I don't really recall whether I was angry or not. A lot of people asked me if I was scared, and I'm sure I was. If I wasn't, something wrong with me. Scores of planes were bruised and battered. By At the, the Army Air Corps' Hickam Airfield nearby, the Japanese assault continued. Parked wingtip to wingtip, nearly every American warbird was incinerated before ever taking flight. But Japan's real target was Battleship Rogue. The Utah is shown capsized and partially sunk. Within minutes, the California was sinking, and the Oklahoma had also capsized, trapping hundreds in her hull. Well, the whole side of Battleship Row, clear down to the Arizona, is covered with flames. The people in the water, swimming, trying to get out. It was a terrible, terrible scene. 95-year-old Delton Wally Walling was perched high in a patrol tower that day and saw it all unfold. Can you imagine how I'm feeling now when I'm watching my great Navy stuffed down my throat? I'm devastated, mad. And it got worse. Not far away, the Shaw, a destroyer, exploded with such ferocity, it sent pieces flying a half mile away, a moment captured in this iconic photograph. That almost knocked us off in the tower. But it was the Arizona that got the worst of it. Hit by armor-piercing bombs, it too exploded, killing 1,177, the single largest loss of life in American naval history. Her hull is still in the mud where she sank. The Arizona remains the final resting place for most of her crew, including 23 sets of brothers, family dying shoulder to shoulder, in a war that hadn't even been declared. When we talk to people, they will say, oh, my father or my grandfather wouldn't tell us anything until he was 60 or 70 years old. They were told to forget about it, to just get on with their lives and forget it. 
Craig Nelson spent the last five years compiling one of the most recent accounts of Pearl Harbor, published by Simon & Schuster, a CBS company. December 7, 1941, he says, was arguably just as pivotal to our identity as the 4th of July, 1776. It completely transformed the United States. At that moment, we were 14th military power in the world behind uh, Sweden. So it served really as a rallying cry, in a way. It made us put on our big boy pants and grow up and become a global leader. The U.S. did bounce back in double time. All but three of the ships damaged or sunk on December 7th were raised, repaired, and sailed again. In fact, by the end of the war, the U.S. had chased down and destroyed every Japanese aircraft carrier used to launch the attack. This is the greatest generation in the world, and we're down to the handful left. Thank you for your service. Wally, like most of the other 40,000 or so enlisted men on Oahu that day, was just a teenager back then. But history's clock is relentless. I see their faces right before me and know they're gone. Pearl Harbor's chief historian, Daniel Martinez, has worked here for 32 years. And with each passing anniversary, he worries the collective memory of December 7th is fading. Uh, most of the young people that come here don't have a clue what happened at this place. They don't even know who won the war. How we will remember World War II after they're gone. This was a huge open part of the harbor. Dorinda Nicholson now lives in Kansas City, Missouri, but has made the nearly 5,000-mile trip here to Pearl Harbor for almost every anniversary to tell her story, sometimes bringing with her the tiny gas mask that she and her brother wore as children in the days after the attack. So why did you keep this all those years? Oh, it's my history. It was history that changed her life and ours. The cry, remember Pearl Harbor, sounds pretty obvious. But the challenge for the next generation is to really remember, absent those who will no longer be here to remind us face to face. They are my heroes, and I will tell their stories as long as I live. December 7th, 1941. Next. A date which will live in infamy. The speech that rallied a nation. The day of infamy is how we Americans have come to remember the attack on Pearl Harbor. And we owe that phrase to the American president who knew exactly what was called for in a moment of crisis. David Martin takes us back. This is John Daly speaking from the CBS newsroom in New York. The Japanese have attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and our defense facilities at Manila, capital of the Philippines. President Roosevelt knew war was coming, but not like this. The attack apparently was made on naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. On that Sunday, he was working on his stamp collection in his private study in the White House, now preserved in this panoramic photo. The phone rings at this desk. It's the Secretary of Navy on the line. Herman Eberhardt is the curator at the FDR Library in Hyde Park, New York. And he tells the president that the Pearl Harbor Naval Base is under attack. It was 1.47 p.m. Washington time. And what was the president's first reaction? 
The critical hours that followed were recorded moment by moment by the people around the president, sometimes in hastily scrawled notes on random scraps of paper, now on display for the 75th anniversary of the attack. We want to take people inside the White House on one of the most important days in American history. Paul Sparrow is director of the FDR library. It was the worst day of his presidency. It was the worst military defeat in American history. In an hour and five minutes, the battleship Arizona was completely destroyed and four others severely damaged. I think December 7th, 1941 is perhaps the most important day in American history. It is the transition day when we shifted from being an isolationist nation to being a global superpower. At 3.05 in the afternoon, the president convened a war council with his chief military and diplomatic advisors. How do they describe it? Angry, but composed. He's clearly upset, but he is under control and he is processing information and he's not losing his cool. At 3.50, as Roosevelt noted in his own handwriting, he received this update. Severe damage. The battleship Oklahoma has capsized. Airfields attacked. Hangers on fire. Heavy personnel casualties. Then he turned to his secretary, Grace Tully, to compose a message to the American people. She says that he lit a cigarette, took a long drag on the cigarettes, uh, leaned back in his chair, and then just began to dictate the speech. She said he dictated most of it without interruption, uh, punctuating, uh, letting her know where the periods and the exclamation points needed to go. After he finished, she left the room and typed it up, brought it back to him, and then FDR himself um, did all of the editing in pencil to his own speech. And here it is, edited by Roosevelt in his own hand. This is one of our most treasured documents here at the Roosevelt Library. Two and a half pages in length, it begins with what would become one of the most famous lines in American history. He takes that first sentence, which originally read, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in world history. He strikes out world history, changes that to infamy, and in the process transforms that sentence into one that really rings down through the decades to us today. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Some of his advisors, the Secretary of State, Secretary of War, wanted him to deliver a much longer speech. The State Department drafted this 17-page speech, rehashing the history of U.S.-Japanese relations. But Roosevelt set it aside and went with his gut. He knew that the American public wanted to hear that we had been wronged and that we will find a way to victory. No matter how long it may take us, to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. For all his public confidence, Roosevelt also had moments of private despair. How did he express that despair? He felt that he was going to go down in history as a terrible president, that this would ruin his, his place in history. When he addressed the joint session of Congress, Roosevelt, who was paralyzed by polio from the waist down, insisted on walking to and from the podium. He's supporting his weight, as he did in public, on a cane. 
on his son's arm. By holding his weight in that manner, he's able to pitch his body forward slowly and walk to the rostrum to deliver the speech. Well, that just gives you chills thinking about it. Yeah. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack put the weight of the world on his paralyzed legs and carried America from the past into the future and changed us from an isolationist nation into a global superpower. A state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The speech lasted just six and a half minutes, but it transformed the nation from a state of shock into a state of war. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Do we base our decisions on reason and logic or on our gut? It's a question underlying the fine print in the newest book by best-selling author Michael Lewis. He's been talking with our John Blackstone. So the book is finished now. It's going to go out to reviewers. Yes. Do you worry about that when the reviews come back? You want to just plumb my anxieties? Because I'm happy to do this. Uh, Michael Lewis would seem to have little reason to be anxious. He's turned books about bond sales, baseball statistics, and the housing crisis into bestsellers. But he admits his upcoming book, The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds, doesn't immediately sound like a compelling read. When people ask me what this book was about, it's a book about two Israeli psychologists. Nobody ever asks a follow-up question when you tell them you're writing a book about two, two Israeli psychologists. Those two Israeli psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, grabbed Lewis's attention when he discovered he should have known about them before he wrote Moneyball. So I pride myself when I get into a story on seeing what the story is and shining the light in the, in the right places. And I really missed something big when I was writing Moneyball. Moneyball, made into a movie starring Brad Pitt, describes how Billy Bean, general manager of the Oakland A's, built a winning team by ignoring the gut instincts of experienced major league scouts and instead using data analysis to find good players who were undervalued by other teams. If we win on our budget with this team, we'll change the game. If they could be misvalued by experts in valuing them, who, who's, who's not misvalued? You're probably misvalued in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Probably undervalued. Undervalued, right. for sure. Uh, the question is like, why does that happen? How can the gut instincts of apparent experts, and all of us for that matter, so often be so wrong? That question is what Kahneman and Tversky studied for decades. It's been said they changed the way we think about thinking. What they were engaged in right from the beginning was undoing a false view man has of himself. The view that the mind is somehow um, rational and untrickable and potentially infallible. They took dead aim at it and they dealt it a death blow. What captivated Lewis was their relationship. They met in the psychology department at Hebrew University. Eventually, both moved to universities in North America. Neither on his own was terribly disruptive. Together, they were, they were this combustible force. Two brilliant minds that seemed completely different. If the title hadn't already been taken, you could have called this the odd couple. 
Well, that's absolutely right. Amos Tversky is one of these rare characters who thought he was right about everything and is right. He was a breathtakingly gifted mind uh, and very, very, very sure of himself. Kahneman, though, is unsure of most everything. Danny certainly doesn't trust his mind, right? Oh, no. No, no, no. Danny, Danny doesn't trust his mind to the point where when they finish one of their papers, Amos would basically wait by the phone at 2 or 3 in the morning for Danny's call saying, it's all wrong, it's going to destroy our reputations, we can't publish it. Tversky died 20 years ago at the age of 59. Kahneman went on to win the Nobel Prize for integrating psychological research into economics. In 2013, President Obama awarded him the Medal of Freedom. Now, all of us have moments when we look back and wonder, uh, what the heck was I thinking? I have that uh, <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, psychologist Daniel Kahneman has made that simple question his life's work. Kahneman and Tversky showed that gut instinct is far from dependable. There was a lesson in that for Lewis himself, a man strongly self-confident. So are you more likely now to listen to your wife, listen to your editors? So the answer to that is yes, a little bit. Um, my wife would totally disagree. I mean, totally disagree. But I, I actually have taken this on board, that I am aware that I have very strong impulses that I often obey. Uh, and they've misled me in some cases, and they've, it's worked out in other cases. I, I could, from my life story, I could build a narrative that my gut is great, and I should just follow it, because I forget the mistakes it, it led to, and I remember the successes. One success, The Big Short, about the mortgage crisis, was made into an Oscar-winning movie. The default rates are already up from 1% to 4%, fellas. And if they rise to 8%, and they will, a lot of these triple Bs are going to zero, too. And then that happens. What is that? That's America's housing market. Lewis now lives in Berkeley, California. The View is part of the attraction, clearly. And his first book, Liar's Poker, was about his time in New York as a young bond trader on Wall Street. A large part of that book is the how, pe how people are so irrational in the decisions they make. Yeah, you know, the foundation stone of Liar's Poker, and in some ways, The Undoing Project, was my astonishment that anybody would take my financial advice. I mean, really, I was 24 years old. I was an art history major. I knew nothing about money. He was getting rich quick, but his gut instincts told him he'd be happier writing for a living. It wasn't even a decision. I mean, it looked insane to my father and to the people I worked for because they thought, you know, what are the odds he's going to make it as a writer? But make it, he did. Inside corner. As a best-selling author, a perk he seems to enjoy most is go. having plenty of time to spend with his three children. Catching fastballs hurled by his 14-year-old daughter. You gonna guard me? Taking on his nine-year-old son and a couple of friends on the basketball court. Oh, 4-2. What about other parents when they see that the author of Moneyball is, <laughs> is coaching a team? <laughs> So I sponsor the teams too. So for years, my kids were called, the teams were called the money ballers or, or the blindsiders or the big shorters. And I just put the, whatever book I was working on on their jersey just for fun. Lewis figures the undoing project, like those books, has movie potential too. The first hardbound copies arrived the day we visited. It looks great. I was worried it was going to be way too fat. 
He's already thinking about his next book. There you go. Right Something there. about raising children. That's unhittable. The research for that he can do right in his own backyard. All right. That's 30. You're not really Santa. If you were Santa, you could do magic. Still to come, tis the season. Here, let's watch you disappear. For actor Billy Bob Thornton. Tis the season for movies celebrating the joys of Christmas. And then there are the movies Billy Bob Thornton stars in. He's got another one out, as Tracy Smith is about to show us. What do you want? What? What do you want? What are you doing? In 2003, Billy Bob Thornton played a department store Santa who was definitely on the naughty list. Yeah, I'm Santa. Come on, what do you want? Um, Barbie. Say cheese. Okay, fine, Barbie. Oh, thank you. Ow, what's the toenails, kid? He drank, he cursed, he stole. Jesus Christ! And those were his nicer qualities. I'm on my lunch break, okay? Are you insane? It was a gamble, and Thornton knew it. When you saw the script for that original Bad Santa, what'd you think? Well, I knew it was either going to be the most brilliant idea ever, or I might have to become a plumber. Thankfully, he never had to pull out the plunger. Bad Santa made $60 million at the box office, plus enough of a fan following to warrant a sequel. What the hell are you looking at me so funny for? Sorry, Santa. I had to go. Oh, is that you? I thought it was me. Bad Santa 2 is in theaters now. Ho, ho. Billy Bob Thornton is known for creating memorable characters like the death row prison guard with regrets in Monster's Ball, or the killer with no soul in the TV series Fargo. But I gotta say, if that were me in your position, I would have killed that man. Sometimes I'm playing somebody that I may have a problem with. I mean, your job as an actor is not to go only play things that make you look good. Maybe because of where he came from, Billy Bob Thornton has always been willing to do things others might not. Growing up poor in rural Arkansas, he financed his dreams of playing in a band, working hard jobs hauling hay and shoveling tar. When he moved to L.A. to try acting, he struggled for years. Why didn't you give up? Well, uh, you know, people ask that sometimes. It's like, why didn't you just give up and go home? I didn't have anything back there either. So it wasn't like, oh, no, I'm going to go back to the comfort of home, you know. But in 1996, at the age of 41, things got a lot more comfortable. I kind of want something other to eat. Mm -hmm. Thornton made Sling Blade, transforming himself and his life, winning an Oscar for Best Screenplay. I like the way you talk. Well, I like the way you talk. Marlon Brando called me, Martin Scorsese. What does that do to you? Well, first, you don't believe it's them. You think it's some idiot friend of yours <laughs> pulling your leg. <laughs> but I became friends with those people, and I, yeah, I never dreamed I, that would happen. Did you feel like a fish out of water? Oh, absolutely. I still feel like a fish out of water. You know, some people can't get past 
their past, <laughs> I guess. I, I certainly haven't. And the hotels are not as crazy as it used to be. It's, that doesn't mean he didn't try. And I lived in two south over here. For about six years in the 90s, he lived a very Hollywood existence. And in the beginning, I lived in one room 134. Here at the swanky Sunset Marquee Hotel. Why'd you live here? Well, I don't like to be alone, you know, but I don't like to be with people, so it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and for a time, he had a very Hollywood marriage to Angelina Jolie. When Sunday Morning first did a story on him in 2001, she was right there. They were also very affectionate in public, and the public ate it up. When the press found out that they wore lockets with drops of each other's blood in them, the story grew to monstrous proportions. And then the next thing, they got a quart of blood around their neck, and then they are vampires, they live in a dungeon, they bite each other in the neck. It goes from, oh, look how much in love these people are, to they're vampires. But of course, they were only human. They divorced in 2003. And the two of you are still friends. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's not like we go out to Barney's Beanery every night together, because she's all over the world, you know? Thornton's now married for the sixth time to Connie Angland. They've been together for more than a decade and live in a secluded part of L.A. with their daughter, Bella. Yeah, okay. And he's also yeah. in a long-term relationship with these guys, J.D. Andrew and Teddy Andriatis, in a band they started in 2007 called The Boxmasters. You guys have been together nearly 10 years now. It's a long time for a band. It's a long time for any relationship. <laughs> yeah, right. What do you think makes this relationship work? Um, well, we're, we don't have any other friends other than ourselves. <laughs> they just wrapped a nationwide tour where they played to sold out crowds in venues like this one, Knuckleheads in Kansas City. Nice. Yeah, it's not bad. You know, we spend a lot of time on here. The band and crew travel, eat, and sleep on this bus. Twelve people crammed into triple-decker bunks. Yeah. I prefer the bottom bunk. This is mine right here. Does anybody snore? Oh, everybody snores except me. <laughs> not that he has much time to sleep. Along with movies and the band, he just starred in Amazon TV's legal drama, Goliath. Therefore, the case is dismissed. Thank you. Are you kidding? Do I look like a kidder, sir? No, but you sound bought. I hope they paid you well. Oh, Jesus. At age 61, Thornton is open to projects he might have once rejected. Somebody sent me a script saying, hey, you're going to play uh, Jennifer Lawrence's grandfather. I might go, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that guy. <laughs> you know, you bet your ass I'm not doing that. And then you realize it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe I am. <laughs> so now would you consider so, that if somebody sent you that script? The script was good enough, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> hey, Mike. And Billy Bob Thornton knows the good thing about being old enough to play a grandpa or a Santa is what comes with age. Wisdom, maybe, and gratitude. If I hadn't gotten in the entertainment business, I would be probably making minimum wage still. So what does that do to you, to come from that and be where you are now? 
I thank my lucky stars every day. And the whole list series began with... With the blacklist. Mm -hmm. Ahead, photographer Timothy Greenfield Sanders. He's making a list. His photos are reflections of the dreams and aspirations of people who've often felt marginalized. Serena Altschul introduces us to the photographer and his subjects. In Los Angeles this past September, the red carpet was rolled out at the Annenberg Space for Photography for an unusual guest list. Oh my goodness, girl, look. The stars of Timothy Greenfield Sanders' latest project, titled the trans list. As a trans person, you're always scared, will this person actually see me? I'm very proud. Greenfield Sanders trains his lens on the transgendered. This is it. Yes, I'm trans. And catalogs their stories in a film that airs on HBO this Monday. My films are my portraits come to life. They're that plain backdrop that you know, direct-to-camera gaze, that simplicity. Every journey has its struggle. Some of the stories you may have heard, like Caitlyn Jenner's. Going from a very positive, masculine figure to what a lot of people perceive as a feminine, weak figure. Publicly, not easy to do. What Caitlyn did was allowed men in particular, who loved Bruce Jenner, who respected Bruce Jenner to all of a sudden think differently. This was an incredibly important moment. And good, right there. But no less important are the stories that you may not have heard, like that of British actress, model, and former Bond girl, Caroline Cossey. After I was outed by the news of the world, I felt desperate, suicidal. It really wasn't anyone's business, and it should have been left to me if I wanted to talk about it. Our culture has these kind of boxes of, you know, what a man should be and what a woman should be. And I think certainly in the last 40 years, the gay rights movement has made people more aware that it's not so simple. Capturing the complexity of the American identity has become something of a specialty for Greenfield Sanders. In 2006, he and author Toni Morrison hatched the idea to photograph renowned African Americans, a series of photographs and films titled The Blacklist. My dad used to say this, you can't beat white people at anything. Never. But you can knock them out. That work was exhibited in the National Portrait Gallery. Other lists followed. Can you sound more Latina? The Can Latino list. The out list. The women's list. An unconventional body of work for an artist that fell into photography almost by accident as a film student in Los Angeles. They needed someone for the school to just kind of take snapshots of the visiting dignitaries. And you would see every film for two weeks by Betty Davis, and then Betty Davis would come. I leaned down to take her portrait, and she said, what the f*** are you doing shooting from below? And I said, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and she said, well, if you can drive a car, I'll teach you about photography, young man. And I drove her around for a week, and I'd pick her up in the morning, and we would drive to her agents and have a nice Bloody Mary about 10.30.
And she would then talk about these great Hollywood photographers and how they would light her and how a light should be set for her face. And it got me more and more interested in portraiture. Newly wed and fresh out of film school, the budding artist moved to New York City's East Village in 1978. There was a lot of excitement here, and it was also very cheap. So we ended up, luckily, buying this building. I remember walking in and thinking, you know, Thanks. oh my God, look at this. Oh my God. A 1905 neo-Gothic German-Roman Catholic rectory. The former priest's home became his studio. People ask me what's your favorite photo or your favorite. Yeah. It's not really ever that. It's, 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 they're all kind of great experiences, right. you know, with Patti Smith or right. with Victor Cruz. Those times on this set, in this room, in this building were right. special. This is my camera. Greenfield Sanders says the difficulties of working with an antique camera made him a better photographer. No smiles. No smiles. It forced me to think about what the portrait was rather than just shoot and hope I get something. There's something about large format that's so beautiful, the fine art print side of it and the complicatedness of it. And it became kind of a signature, really, for me. A signature camera. A remarkable career. We walk a few miles with Steve Hartman. Next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Step by step, a young man's walk home from work has turned his entire life around. Steve Hartman has a story of partnership. I'm coming 97. It had all the makings of a bad situation. That's not very well lit out here. Late at night, in an industrial section of Benicia, California, Officer Kirk Keffer says he spotted a shadowy figure in a dark hoodie. And he kind of caught me off guard because I normally don't see anybody out there, and there's no sidewalks, and he's kind of walking on the side of the street. You knew it wasn't right. Right, it wasn't right. Or was it? Jordan Duncan says he was minding his own business. And I noticed that it was a police car, and I was like, oh, Okay, I'm not going to move. I don't want him to think I have any weapons. Jordan explained to the officer that he was just walking home from work. There was no crime. Kid didn't need help. By all rights, Officer Keffer could have, and many officers would have, just left him alone. But Keffer isn't that kind of cop. He gave Jordan a ride. And more importantly, he gave him a listen. And what struck you? Just his, uh, his drive, his work ethic. And to me, that, that speaks volumes. As Keffer took Jordan from where he works on the line here at Proform Laboratories, he started to really appreciate the young man sitting next to him. Because this wasn't just a trip around the block. This was a seven-mile trek, a two-and-a-half-hour walk to Jordan's house, a whole town away in Vallejo, California. He said, and you're walking? I said, yeah, I'm walking. Not many 18-year-olds that you meet have that kind of mindset, you know, there's, no. they don't even want to walk down to the store, let alone walk, you know, seven miles just to get to work. Jordan says he started walking to work after his car broke down last May. He says people have offered him rides, but he wants to make it on his own. And when Keffer heard that, 
he had heard enough. He immediately made plans to visit Jordan again. He said, hey, Jordan, you remember me, right? I was like, how could, could I, I not? How could I not? So I said, Jordan, you're not in trouble. I said, we just want to give you something. To ease his commute, Keffer got the police association to buy Jordan a new bike. I was just looking at the bike like, this bike is going to be cherished. Keffer also raised an additional $38,000 to help him buy a car and pursue his career goal, which is to be a police officer. You know, it's an honorable job. Jordan even got to ride along on a shift. I wanted to show him what law enforcement does. You're not going to shake this kid now. No. He's no, yours. He's mine. Yeah. <laughs> what started with a tense encounter may end with a perfect partnership. Coming up, the Rolling Stones still rolling along. It's Sunday morning on CBS. Here again is Jane Pauley. The Rolling Stones have been satisfying fans for more than 50 years. And as Anthony Mason explains, this year is no exception. It's been a busy year for the world's biggest rock band. The Rolling Stones kicked it off with a tour of Latin America that ended in March in front of half a million fans in Havana. So how are you feeling about the band these days? Bands rocking, man. No, it's kind of weird at our age, but it's getting better. In October, the Stones joined a lineup of legends that included Paul McCartney, Roger Waters, Bob Dylan, and The Who at the Desert Trip Festival in California. How would you like Desert Trip? It's very dusty, but it was fun. You were a little wary ahead of time about a concert with too many white people. <laughs> Old white English people. Did you enjoy playing? Yeah, very much. And the fact, I mean, to have Bob Dylan like, to open up for you is sort of, in a way, ludicrous. <laughs> and then, of course, the second week, uh, he gets the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> now you got a Nobel winner in opening for you. Yeah, right. I want mine for chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> They're ending the year by releasing an unexpected album, Blue and Lonesome, a classic blues record, is their first studio album in more than a decade and no one was more surprised than the Stones themselves. None of us would have ever looked at each other in the eye and said, let's make a blues album. It had to happen on its own. Yeah, and it just happens right there and then. Just keep rolling. It happened at Mark Knopfler's London studio last December. The Stones had booked session time and started playing some old blues songs just to warm up the room. She's my just an organic little moment that happened. Yeah, it was an organic little moment, and Keith would say it was meant to be, the stars were aligned. I mean, and it's all true. And you sort of felt that you were being compelled to do it by some higher being or something. Over three days, 
they hit a blues streak and knocked out a dozen songs. And you pretty much did them live? Yeah, straight through live. I've never done a record like that. I mean, not even in 1963 or whenever it was. When it was done, were you thinking there's an album here? I just thought we've got a damn load of good tracks here. And uh, maybe it's going to end up in the archives or right. something. It took Mick a, a little while to be <laughs> persuaded. You weren't so sure? No. I mean, it's really nice and everything, but who's going to buy it? But the record company said, no, we can put it out. They wanted to put it out. For Christmas! <laughs> and here Bells we are. On it. Blue and Lonesome takes the Rolling Stones back to their roots. We started this band to play music like that. And then, of course, you know, things got bigger, and then we started writing ourselves, and then it became pop music. But this has always been the basic roots of the band. Keith and Mick bonded over the blues back in 1961 at the Dartford train station when Keith noticed some albums under Mick's arm. I'm carrying this record means it's a chat invitation. It's a badge of some kind. It's a badge, yeah. I said, what you got under your arm, man? The best of muddy waters and rocking at the hops by Chuck Berry. Anyways, the guy on the station called Mick Jagger. Keith wrote about the meeting. April 1962, you sent this from home. Mm -hmm. In a letter to his aunt. Beside that, Mick is the greatest R&B singer this side of the Atlantic, and I don't mean maybe. I'm playing guitar Chuck style. Chuck Berry. Yeah, that'll be Chuck Berry, yeah. Richards and Jagger, who'd both turned 19 that year, began playing Saturday nights at a basement blues club in West London. Was that where you started to test out your style, if you will? I'd done it before that, actually. So I, I used to sing with rock bands when I was 16. I did stuff, you know, dance around. Mm -hmm. People liked it. <laughs> and I went home and didn't tell my parents what I'd done. What would they have thought if you did? I don't know. <laughs> the rock music was for, like, uneducated working-class people. So my parents wouldn't have approved of it. So you didn't want to tell them? No. No. <laughs> so the blues and folk music had a kind of weird respectability. It's hard to believe this now, but in those days. So it was slightly more respectable to play blues and folk music was to play rock music. At the Ealing Jazz Club, Jagger and Richards would meet Charlie Watts and Brian Jones. When the new band booked its first gig in July of 62, Jones found its name on the back of that Best of Muddy Waters LP. Side one, track five, the Rolling Stones were born. The rest, of course, is rock and roll history. More than half a century of it now, on display in New York at Exhibitionism, a collection of Rolling Stones memorabilia that opened last month. It includes a recreation of the band's first apartment, a second floor flat at number 102 Edith Grove in London's Chelsea neighborhood. Does it actually look like your place? Yeah, it really does. It's so uncannily accurate <laughs> that I felt uh, I'm home. <laughs> How many of you were living in that room? Brian, Mick, and me. I refused to come there. <laughs> They'd live at Edith Grove for less than a year, but it would be the cradle of the Rolling Stones sound. Brian Jones and I used to sit around in that old room just trying to figure out how these guitar players worked. 
their stuff together, their evil magic. The next year, the Stones would ride the blues classic Little Red Rooster to the top of the British charts. Many of their blues heroes never stopped playing, like Buddy Guy, still performing at 80. Jagger is now 73, and Richards will match him later this month. But the Rolling Stones somehow seem eternal. Their past still present. Do you ever run out of things that you want to do? No, I just want to see how long the string is. <laughs> what aspirations do you have for the band? Sorry, big head. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I don't What's know. Was left? <laughs> well, that's. Well, they always things weirdly present themselves. I mean, you, there's a certain thing you have to keep going. But I guess what I'm asking is, do you have to keep going? No, of course not. You could have stopped 20 years ago if you wanted. But you are still going. No, so I am. So I don't really explain that. It's just not something you analyse. You create a momentum yourself, and then some interesting things come up which are outside of the ordinary. But you never know you're going to play in Cuba the first time or make a blues album in three days. They just come up. And it's, you know, it reinvigorates your interest. This never gets old to you? No, no, it gets more interesting, actually. And as long as I've got a solid group of guys around me, I feel immortal for a little while. On stage, sometimes, I feel immortal. That's going to be a great feeling, though. Yeah, it is a great feeling. I know I'm blessed. I know that. I'll come back as a frog. <laughs> the prospect of happy hunting inspired thousands to embrace the absurd this past summer for the very best of reasons. Our David Pogue of Yahoo Tech joined in the fun. This past August, some pretty weird sights started popping up across the country. In Chicago, a game of badminton broke out in a shopping mall. In Vermont, servants in formal dress milked a cow. And at the Yale Art Gallery, a million-dollar masterpiece was replaced by a forgery that had been painted by a six-year-old. These people aren't crazy, they're competing in something called Gishwez, the greatest international scavenger hunt the world has ever seen. It's not a treasure hunt exactly, it's more of a, well... It's kind of like this mass art project, science project, social experiment, fiasco that happens for one week every year. Misha Collins is an actor. He stars in the CW series Supernatural, and he's the mastermind behind Gishwes. And the magical thing about it is it gets people to do things that are completely outside their comfort zone. And it's all for charity. Each competing team has one week to complete a list of tasks dreamed up by Collins and his staff. La, la, like la, item 43, la, la, play a human la, piano. The pianist is my daughter, Tia. Yeah, I'll throw everyone in that one. These are her teammates, meeting for one of their daily video chats. Co-captains Nina Mastapan and Jeff McAnally let us tag along for this year's hunt. So a normal scavenger hunt would be, you know, 
get the dean's autograph or... No, um, it's not a scavenger hunt in that sort of way. That's not what we're doing. What are you doing? Crazy stuff. You know, bring cookies to an elderly home. So things to help the community and help others around you. Some tasks involve creating offbeat artwork, like item 21, recreate a landmark in twigs. Some challenge your sanity, like item 78, build a working loot out of lutefisk. It's cold and gross and doesn't stay in tune. Lutefisk is a gelatinous cod dish. It's not a natural choice for musical instruments. Many of the items encourage acts of kindness, like feeding the homeless or putting on puppet shows for hospitalized children. One item this year raised $215,000 for Syrian refugees. I think different people participate for different reasons. I would say the majority of people are participating to have fun and get involved in a team activity. Now, if you don't think you'd have fun wearing an outfit made of pizza or playing ping pong underwater, then you might wonder why over 30,000 people competed this year. Well, there is the grand prize, of course, a trip to Iceland with Misha Collins. But many people join for an even grander reason, to make the world a kinder place. You see, Misha Collins also runs a charity called Random Acts. We do things that kind of run the gamut from, you know, people just handing out flowers to strangers on the street to building orphanages in Haiti or high schools in Nicaragua. The entry fees for Gishwes fund that charity. In other words, Collins uses his TV stardom to generate interest in a scavenger hunt that funds a charity that spreads kindness. Apparently, it's working. In its six years, Gishwes has raised over a million dollars for charity and racked up seven world records. We have a Guinness World Record for the largest scavenger hunt. We have a Guinness World Record for the largest number of charitable pledges. Gishwes is all about having fun! And maybe this will be one more for the record books. I want to be wetter. Item 15 invited teams to face off in San Francisco for a massive water balloon fight. What was it like being in the throes of battle? Uh, really fun. It was fun. It was awesome, David. <laughs> the runner-ups in alphabetical order. When the judging was complete, Misha Collins appeared on Facebook to announce the winning team. The Gishwas 2016 winning team is raised from perdition. <laughs> The judges had no idea that the team they declared the winner was the team our cameras had been following. Honest. In the TV news business, every now and then, the story goes your way. I have to say, you come up with 200 items, and then you have to judge them, and then you have to put some elaborate trip together. You're making this sound like a real hassle. I would be lying if I said there weren't times when I'm like, I can't do this anymore. But if we can be, you know, having any kind of positive impact on people while doing something that makes me laugh, I should probably keep doing it. And if he will, they will. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.